You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today's episode is the January 3, 2021 sermon titled Jonah and the Huge Fish from Pastor John's Seeing Jesus in the Stories sermon series. The story of Jonah and the Huge Fish is another famous story of the Bible that is known by many people, even those who do not believe that the Bible is God's word. For that matter, the story of a man being swallowed by a huge fish and living in its belly for three days is often used as proof that the Bible cannot possibly be true. But Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah as one of the great proofs of his claims to be God's son who will rise from the dead. Jesus saw himself in the Jonah story. Let's see if we can find him in that story as well. Today's message is from our series on seeing Jesus in the stories. And the intent of this stories series is to look at these stories and see um, Jesus in them. Um, so many times they're told with sort of a moralistic or a fable kind of tone to them, and they don't have um, a clear connection to the gospel. And so our purpose in this series is to see Jesus in the stories and, and connect not only how Jesus understood them, but also as how we can understand them now that we have a better understanding of Jesus. <clears throat> so today's message is the one about Jonah and the huge fish, or sometimes called Jonah and the whale. Um, and so let me start by praying, and then we'll read chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah to get the first part of the story. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that we would be diligent in studying it. Um, the Lord Jesus reminds us that that uh, these stories, this whole Old Testament, as we call it, the the Bible that Jesus had, that all these stories, all of these scriptures pointed to him. And so I pray that you would help us understand where Jesus is in this story and that we would be faithful in seeing him there. And for by his power and in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, let me start by reading Jonah chapter 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying for the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is re responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the Lord, the God of 
heaven and who made the sea and, and, and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. And I will know, I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. <clears throat> now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. A pretty familiar story uh, uh, in culture. We, we know of the Jonah story, and so um, it's kind of an exciting story. Uh, for sure, it got lots of characters and intrigue. And so first, let's talk about the story itself. What, what are some things that we observe? I think it's interesting to notice that Jonah goes into a deep sleep. His sleep is almost an unnatural sleep, and the captain is amazed. He said, how can you sleep in such a terrible storm? And so uh, this deep sleep sometimes is even thought to represent how he, he his heart was so hard and so cold that he uh, escaped God with a deep sleep. The other thing that is interesting in the story is how God prepares things, that the text uses the same words. And first of all, um, God prepares a terrible storm. And then God prepares a, a fish to catch Jonah in his mouth. And God prepares the different events of the story. So God is seen as in charge of and, and acting through the laws of nature and all of his uh, creation to make things happen the way he wants to. His providential, sovereign control over these experiences. The other thing that's interesting to observe is 
um, the progression of the sailors' fears. Did you catch that? How first they were afraid of the storm, and then when they found out what Jonah had done, that he had ran from the Lord and that this punishment was against them because of him, um, they, they were even more afraid. But then when they threw Jonah into the sea, they, uh, they were even more afraid when it became calm. And so they were afraid of the storm. They were afraid of what God, uh, Jonah had done to deserve God's wrath. But when God demonstrated his wrath and, and taking Jonah and then demonstrated his kindness to them by giving them a calm sea, they were even more afraid. They were greatly terrified. And so there's something to be said about that part of the story. The other thing I kind of, uh, or another thing that I notice in the story is the moral superiority of the sailors. In other words, here Jonah, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want to obey God. He doesn't care about the people of Nineveh, and that's a whole subset of a, another part of the story. But here these um, sailors, they don't want to throw Jonah into the sea. They, they want to save his life. They they don't want to, and so they try even harder to row the ship to shore to spare Jonah's life, even though Jonah told them that he was guilty and that the way to save them was to throw him in. And so in some ways, they're morally more superior. These pagans who did not know God, each one who called on his own God, they did not know Yahweh. They were uh, more ethically superior than Jonah himself, and they tried very hard. And when they did throw Jonah in, they asked uh Jonah's God, Yahweh, that they've now started to meet, they asked him to spare their lives and that they would not be guilty of throwing an innocent man into the sea. And then the other thing I want to notice about the story is that once Jonah is uh, in the belly of the great fish, the huge fish, he is lamenting his case and he calls out to the Lord. But a couple of times he refers to the temple. He says, my eyes will look toward the temple. And then again, I, I will study the temple. I will look at the temple and, and look toward it. And there's a there's a lot going on there. And I want to spend more time unpacking that later in this message. But I think it's important to understand that the, the holy temple, this isn't just talking about a worship place. This is talking about where um, sins were atoned for, where God does his business with mankind. And, and Jonah's study of the temple is really his best understanding of how you relate to God and how God um, provides a propitiation, a payment for the sins of human beings. And so that's part of the story for sure. Well, there's many other things you could observe. There's uh, some cool things, but um, I want to continue on. And the next part of the, the message this morning is, what is the uh, what is the messages that we often hear? What is it that we uh often get from the Jonah story? What what messages did you hear when you were a little child and you heard this story in Sunday school? And so one of the clear messages is you cannot run away from God. I, I always remember it being emphasized that how silly for Jonah to think that he could run away from God. And, and God caught him, just like God will always do. And so uh, that's a pretty good reminder, and it's true, that you cannot run away from God. The other thing that I noticed and I picked up later or heard was the amazing worship of the pagans, the fact that they, um, after having done this, they offered sacrifices to Yahweh. And so it's kind of interesting that throughout the story, it almost seems like in the midst of this horrible, um, this horrible wrath of God, this storm that God has provided, actually produces in these 
pagan sailors, these hardened, lost people, it produces in them a better understanding of God and ultimately leads to their worship. And so it's almost like they get converted through the process. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. It reminds me of the verse in Romans that says that the kindness of the Lord leads a person to repentance. And when these men experience the kindness of God, the grace and forgiveness, or at least the peace and the storm that came to them, they were even more afraid of God and they wound up worshiping him. Uh, another part of the message is that God gives Jonah a second chance. And so um, there's sort of a graceful hope here that if you walk away from God, if you do something that's evil, that God will look on you with kindness and give you a second chance. And so uh, how grateful I am for the many chances, if you want to view it that way, that God has given me in my life. I've certainly fallen and done things as bad as Jonah. Um, the other thing that's in the greater story, if you look at all four chapters, is that um, Jonah's motives in this whole thing tell a lot of the story. Um, there's a lot to notice from the fact that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Nineveh is the capital city of a great enemy of Israel. And so as you pick up from chapter 4 especially, Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed by God. And Jonah's not too happy about the fact that when Jonah preaches in Nineveh, they all repent and God spares them and does not destroy their city. And Jonah was camped outside the city hoping for another Sodom and Gomorrah kind of moment, and that never came. And so Jonah was frustrated with that. And so that's um, probably the bigger part of the story for us to pick up on, is that Jonah had a racial, um, ethnic, and uh, a moral superiority, uh, nationalism that made him hate these people, and he did not want to minister to them. And so there's a lot to be applied from that, but that's really not the focus of our story today. We're just talking about the first two chapters about how Jonah um, was caught running away, was thrown into the belly of the great fish, and then how the fish spit him out on dry ground. And so the other um, message that you hear, and the important thing is that Jonah does repent in the huge fish, in the belly of the fish. He sees his danger, the adversity of his life. This is a foxhole conversion, right? He's on the face of destruction. He's about to die. And the seaweed is wrapped around his head and he goes down deeper and deeper. I wonder if he felt water pressure on his ears. Um, there must have been some sort of an air pocket that he was breathing. And he felt the pressures and he went down deep, deep and cold and wet. And, the, um, and in this near-death experience, he understands that he needs to repent and and he says, salvation comes from the Lord. So those are good um, parts of the story to focus on. And they're really good. But if you think about it, some of these, these things are, again, like I said, sort of moralistic, right? You can't run away from God is sort of true. And, and, um, and you know, God gives Jonah a second chance. But they aren't necessarily uniquely Christian. Uh, they, they could work just as well in a synagogue as they could in a church. And so... There isn't anything uniquely about Jesus in this story. And in some ways, you could say it's not necessarily uniquely about even um, Judeo-Christian religions, that other religions could benefit from these same kinds of things, that, um, the same kind of storyline. And so it appeals to us as human beings to, to think about, yeah, I'll, I'll turn around someday, I'll get a second chance. And we view ourselves as being in charge, and we miss 
the fact that there's some gospel going on here too, that we need Jesus to take care of our sins. So I wanted to do some honest reflection, as is my uh, practice here, as we study these stories and as we look for Jesus. And I just wanted to point out that um, I'm kind of distracted by the whole huge fish part. If you'll notice, a lot of people in the world take this text, the story of Jonah, as proof that the Bible is a myth. Uh, there's no way that a human being could be in the belly of a fish for three days. And and um, as such, this is just a fairy tale. And so we're, we're kind of embarrassed by the huge fish story. There, there's other ways that God, it seems to us as Christians, that we there's other ways he could have done this, something that's a little less embarrassing at least. And yet... Um, the way Jesus talks about this story is that it was a historical fact. He doesn't, he doesn't back off on the story. And so in a lot of ways, whether where you stand on the historicity of the great fish story, Jonah and the whale story, kind of betrays whether you believe the whole Bible is God's word or just parts of it that don't embarrass you. And so it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a distracting subtopic, really. And I don't think God means it to be that big a part of the story. There's other things to notice. I also want to admit that there's the Jonah effect in other life situations. I mean, I can't remember how many times I've said, well, I'm the Jonah on this vacation. Throw me overboard. In other words, when everything's going bad and we lose our hotel reservation and it's rainy and the car breaks down, you know, oh, it's my fault. Throw me overboard. And even... Uh, popular media stories come up with that same kind of thing. And so the, the idea of the Jonah effect is somebody somewhere's causing trouble, and if we just give throw them overboard, then things will get better. And it sort of is sort of kind of reduces God to some sort of a tit for tat kind of petty person that, you know, he just punishes everybody until they identify who the Jonah is, and then they throw the Jonah overboard, and then everything goes back to the happy-go-lucky normal that it's supposed to be. And so that Jonah effect is um, is really a secularized view of what's going on in the story. And again, can be a distraction and really takes away from the gospel. It makes it again look like God is a, a petty person, a capricious kind of person. The other thing that um, we have to admit here is that Jonah does deserve this punishment. And so it's hard for us when we're looking for Jesus in the story to have Jonah represent Jesus. It sort of seems to be a cognitive dissonance, right? It doesn't make sense. How can the Jesus character be so rotten like Jonah? And and that's always been sort of a part of the problem. And it even embarrasses me a little bit when Jesus uh, tells the Pharisees and stuff that, that they ask for a sign. And he says, hey, the sign is that just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the depths of the earth. And so Jesus uses this story as a way to connect to himself and as proof. And it always bothered me, is it just the three days and three nights part that connects? I mean, couldn't you find some other story with three days and three nights? Couldn't there have been some some case where there was a, a city was under siege for three days and three nights and then it was miraculously rescued? Why this why this story and why Jonah as the one? I, I always sort of bothered me a little bit that Jesus was sort of saying, hey, I'm just like Jonah. And so <clears throat> that uh, that kind of connection, I wonder if you ever have those thoughts too. So those are some honest reflections that I've had. 
But I want to um, get us to our main idea, main goal of the message today, and that's where is Jesus in the story? Let's look for Jesus. So the first thing is clearly that Jonah's story points to the resurrection. It is a sign of the resurrection. And so how did Jesus say it? In uh, Matthew um, chapter 12, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want you to prove to us who you are and that you've been given the authority to say the things that you've been saying and that you are the one who can uh, be the Messiah. Now, this is, I think, particularly ironic because we're in chapter 12 of Matthew now and Jesus is doing signs and wonders for several chapters for us already and he gave the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And so there have been many signs, miraculous signs, but they're asking for some sort of a sign that meets their standard. And so these Pharisees, these, these people who don't believe in Jesus, are asking for some kind of proof so that they would have to believe him. And I think in their hearts they're actually thinking, go ahead and try, because there isn't any sign that's going to persuade us. But in either case, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. So Jesus sees their duplicity, and he calls it wicked for them to demand a sign. Um, <clears throat> somehow it shows that they're unwilling to believe in him, and that they're on purpose ignoring the signs that he's already given. So anyways, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus says, you're going to ignore all the signs. I'm telling you, I'm not going to give you any sign. But I'm going to give you one sign, and that's sign of the prophet Jonah. And this is where we went and say, Jonah, why do you want to, that guy's a scoundrel. And even after he kind of gets saved, he messes up in chapter four. What's, what's the deal? And so Jesus continues, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so just as Jonah was buried, in a sense, in the belly of a fish, down, down deep at the roots of the mountains, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be dead for three days and nights. And so then rather than expand on that, he goes on and says, the people of Nineveh, that Jonah does eventually go and preach to, the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so this, this, in the judgment day, the people who repented in the day of Jonah will stand up and be a, a piece of evidence, a condemning piece of evidence against those who were in Jesus' day. And he, he said to them, and now one greater than Jonah is here. So if Nineveh accepted the preaching of a, a weak man like Jonah, who had run from the Lord, how much greater is your condemnation if you won't listen to me as a preacher of righteousness? And I'm perfect. I'm not a fool. I'm not as a sinner like Jonah. And, um, and I'm one greater than Jonah. Jonah didn't do any miraculous signs. Not at all, really. He, some miracles happened to him in the sense that he was inside the fish and lived. And, and the miracles that happened while he was hoping for the judgment to come down on Nineveh the uh, gourd and the thing that God prepared over his head, but uh, the shade, but um, now one greater than Jonah is here. And so the, the unto whom much is given, 
much as required. And to those people in Jesus' day who rejected Jesus, this is really bad news for them because they're refusing to accept the true Messiah, the true prophet. So Jonah's story points to the resurrection. So, so by Jesus' own declaration, we have to connect Jesus to the story as Jesus being the one who was, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And God, Jesus is not ashamed of that connection. The other thing that I noticed in the story, though, is that the sins of one brings God's wrath on all. And so this helps us, helps us understand the gospel a little bit by virtue of the fact that we understand that Jonah's sin was the sin that brought all this wrath on the rest of the people on the boat. And so you could kind of um, pick this up, what Jonah himself says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And so Jonah claims credit for the storm. He's the reason for the storm. He's the blame. And the gospel helps us understand, the fact that the gospel helps us understand, just like it says in Romans, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And so we are experiencing the wrath of God. We are all dead in our sins. We are all deserving of death because one man represented us. Adam represented us and he fell and he chose to sin. And because of that, sin was brought into the whole world. And as much as you want to not like that, that somebody else decided for you, he was our representative and he was our great, great, great grandfather ancestor. And we inherit his sin nature. But it's also true that even uh, every one of us have ratified his decision by ourselves being sinful. So in all, through one person's sin, wrath comes on the world. So just like in the ship with Jonah, just as soon as the, just as true as it was that Jonah was responsible for the wrath that was on them all, that does not mean that the rest of them weren't also sailors, uh, were also sinners. The sailors were sinners. And so, um, so the judgment was coming because of one man but they also bore their own guilt. And so the sins of the one brings God's wrath on all. So those two parts, we see Jonah's story points to the resurrection and the sins of one brings God's wrath on all. The other thing that I see the most interesting though is that a Jew dies, a Hebrew person dies to save the lives of the lost. What you have to not miss here is that, Jesus, that Jonah is a one who stands there and and while he is guilty that part if you just suspend that judgment if you look at what's going on here is a man who is a jew who says if you throw me in to the sea if you let all of the wrath fall upon me then you will be saved and so that's the story of jesus and and um and jesus lets all of god's wrath fall upon him he becomes sin for us and by his sacrifice, the rest of us are all made free. We are all made safe if we trust in Jesus. So you can't miss the fact that here a Jew dies for the nations, and it saves their lives. He dies for pagans, and it saves their lives. And so there's a picture of Jesus for sure. There's many places in the New Testament where we could go to, to find scriptural support for that. But I, I, I especially like this one in John 11. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the ones who asked Jesus for a sign earlier, right? They called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so this is towards the end of 
of Jesus's life. This is in Passion Week. This might be a couple of days before the, um, the Lord's Supper and ultimately the last day of Jesus's life on earth. And so they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and they said, what are we accomplishing? They asked, here is the man performing many signs. Do you catch the irony? They asked for a sign. He wouldn't give them one other than the sign of Jonah. And now they said, the same people are saying, look at all the many signs. Anyways, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And so this clearly shows that their motivations for not wanting to believe in Jesus and for hating Jesus was out of jealousy. And Pilate knew it was out of jealousy. They were trying to keep their own power. They wanted their own authority. They wanted their own temple worship. They wanted their own national identity. They did not want God to rule over them. And so this godless man is, is complaining. And then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest or who was high priest that year. So the high priest was selected an annual, annual assignment, an annual term of office. And he spoke up and he says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And so he says the words as a pagan, as an unbeliever, as a person who rejects Jesus, he says with his mouth, it's better for one to die than for the whole nation to perish. And his meaning of the nation was not the same as what it should have been, but you can see. And look what the author of John says. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only that nation, but for also the scattered children of God all across the nations to bring them together and make them one. And so John, the writer, the Apostle John, writes that the prophet came, that the high priest Caiaphas actually spoke a word of prophecy to declare that Jesus would die. One person would die for all the nations. And so Jesus is exactly that, a Jew who dies to save the lives of the lost. Um, again, it's a little bit awkward for us because we think of the fact that Jonah was such a scoundrel. But if you put the person of Jesus into those shoes and you realize that he became a scoundrel for us, he was innocent, but God laid on him the sins of us all. And the wicked one was given over to God's wrath. The, he was righteous. Jesus was perfectly righteous and innocent, but all of the sin was on him. And so as the wicked one, as the recipient, as the substitute for us, he died our death. We should have been thrown into the sea, and he was thrown into the sea, and he was destroyed so that we would not be ultimately. So a, a Jew dies to save the lives of the lost. The other thing that sees Jesus in this story is that Jonah looked toward the temple. As I mentioned earlier, when he was in the belly of the fish, he looked to the temple and he he knew that the temple worship was a, a redemptive process, that there was a procedure by which an individual could be forgiven for their sins. The high priest would have to function in a certain way. And, and when that happened, the, an animal would be sacrificed. And the sacrifice, the shedding of blood would be a substitute for them. And the guilt would be taken away. Um, and there would be some sort of a, a propitiation, a payment for the sins. And they would not have to be um, punished. They could be freed from their sins. And so their salvation story 
as simply as you could understand it was like the Passover lamb when when God sees the blood of the innocent lamb on the doorpost, he passes over and his judgment does not come in that house. And so through the temple, you see the, the annual practice of the Passover and the annual Yom Kippur and the, the time when, we, when the great sacrifice is given and, and the, um, the, the sheep is, or the goat is uh, killed and the other scapegoat is sent into the wilderness and so that our sins are forever gone. And so Jonah looked toward the temple. Look how it says in chapter 2, verse 7, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Yahweh. And in my prayer, my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So I thought about how the things work in your temple. And I said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit God's love for them. A person who clings to their own mastery, to being their own self, to being in charge of their own lives, they forfeit God's hesed, God's covenant loyalty, God's loving kindness for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, right? I'm, I'm grateful for your salvation. I will sacrifice to you. Notice he's, he's already understood that salvation comes from the Lord. And he's not, he's not saying, okay, I will make my promise and I will sacrifice to you and then I'll be grateful. No, I, I realized that I was clinging to worthless idols. I was clinging to my own authority. And I see that in the temple worship that the someone else substitutes for me and someone else pays the penalty for my sin. And so I'm grateful. With shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you. And he says, what I have vowed, I will make good. So now as a believer, he says, I will say, this is my sermon, this is my message. I will say, salvation comes from Yahweh. Salvation doesn't come from me. I didn't save myself. I can't save myself. I'm in the belly of the whale. There's nothing I can do. But salvation comes from Yahweh. I, uh, I want to read for you now a, a fairly lengthy passage out of Hebrews, but I think it's important to help us understand how this temple worship, this temple, this tabernacle, the, as you realize that it was a tabernacle was given to Moses, and then in, they came in the promised land. Eventually, Solomon was able to make the tabernacle into a more permanent structure, and it became the temple of the Lord. And, um, and so this is the place where God did business with people. And the book of Hebrews talks about these things and helps us understand how Jesus makes all the difference in the temple. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. So there was an earthly place of worship, a sanctuary, and it was called a tabernacle. And it was set up, and in its first room were a lampstand and a table with a consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. So there's different layers. There's an outer fence, and then there's, a, there's an inner section with two rooms, and the first room is called the holy place. And so there's in these individual pieces of furniture were all part of the process by which a high priest could go in and atone for the sins of the people, pay, make payment for the sins of the people. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. So now we're in the most inward part of the tabernacle. And this has had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And so that seat where the blood would be dripped, the mercy seat of God, the Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And so in the early tabernacle, it had all these things inside the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim, the angels of the glory, right? The overshadowing on both sides. So it was like where God would sit, like 
um, Isaiah's vision of the cherubim going around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so these statues on either side were overshadowing the atonement cover. And that uh, the writer of Hebrews says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. And so I just wanted to point out that these are the things that Jonah was thinking about when he looked towards God's temple, when he was in the belly of the huge fish. Anyway, the writer of Hebrews goes on, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry out them on the ministry. So they come to the outer room regularly. He said, but only the high priest entered the inner room, the, the most holy place. And that was only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. And so this high priest would come in and he always brought blood to offer as an offering to to be forgiven for the sins of the people, even the sins that they had committed in ignorance, not just the deliberate ones, but the ones they had done unwittingly. And the Holy Spirit was showing by this that, so by this furniture, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And so even though we understood that, that uh, you, the high priest could go in the high place, he couldn't go in un. Aided. He had to have extra cleansing. He had to go through special procedures. And so the Holy Spirit is involved in explaining this through the furniture of the temple. And a prophet like Jonah understood these things. And this is the basis upon which he was able to find a, a peace and a realization that salvation comes from the Lord. But look at what it says, that the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So that old covenant, while it was a picture of what would happen eventually, it was not able by itself to actually do the final work of cleansing the conscience of the worshiper. I still had guilt feelings. I still knew that I wasn't perfect. They, these furniture items, they are only a matter of food and drink and and various ceremonial washings. They're external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So they applied for a time until what? The new order. But when Christ, when Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So this, I'm going to cast my eyes to the ultimate temple now, and that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. In other words, there's a tabernacle, a temple in heaven that God created. It's not made by human hands. And this Jesus, this one who is the high priest, he goes into that temple. And it says he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, just like the high priest on earth always had to pay his way to go in. But, the, he, but he, Jesus, entered the most holy place of the most holy temple, the real one up in heaven, he went in once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. This perfect one who never ever sinned comes and as high priest offers his blood and purchases for us the right for salvation. This, this one who is for the sake of all the people, he is thrown over to destruction. He is despised and rejected. The father abandons his son, Jesus, so much that Jesus says, my God, my God, why, 
Why have you forsaken me? He, he, God turned his back on him and Jesus became sin for us. He goes into the most holy place and offers his own blood and he obtains eternal redemption. The ability to buy us back from hell, from our sins forever. See, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial and clean, sanctify them so long as they're outwardly clean. The, the externals work in a temporary time. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, the spirit of God, offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will he, his blood, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You and I, through our relationship with Jesus, have eternal life, and we have been forgiven for our sins. We have been completely cleansed. How much more? Because Jesus' blood is perfect blood, and he was perfectly willing, and out of no fault of his own, he took upon the wrath of us all, and he was thrown over to destruction. He was thrown into the sea so that we would be saved. And he cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. We may serve the living God now. Our lives are clean. We can actually say with grateful praise, I'm going to go tell everybody salvation is from the Lord. So for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus dies in the temple or as a sacrifice. He dies on the cross and offers himself as a sacrifice at the eternal temple and he sets us free from all the sins we committed under the law. How do you see Jesus in the Jonah story? You have to see that just as Jonah saw the temple as a his rough shadow of the coming gospel, we now see the entire gospel and we see exactly what's going on in God's temple. And Jesus dies for us. And when Jesus is thrown into the sea on our behalf, we're so afraid. The storm is all around us. We only know that we're going to be destroyed. Everything we try to do to fix our own situation makes it worse. We throw the cargo over. We row harder. We do everything that those pagans try to do. We call out to our gods. We cast lots, try to find somebody to blame. And Jesus steps up and says, I will take the blame. I will bear the penalty, the just penalty for the sins committed of all peoples. And if you allow me, if you, by God's plan, if I am destroyed, I will save all the people from their sins. You see, you can't miss Jesus in the story of Jonah and the great huge fish. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus's work Thank you that there is a real temple that Jesus offered his blood once for all. Thank you that he doesn't ever have to do it again. His sacrifice is complete. It was so perfect. And thank you that you love me that much and that I can now live for you with grateful praise and that I don't have to keep earning your love that it's already been purchased. That Jesus loved me so much that he took my hell he went into the grave for three days and three nights. And thank you for that wonderful sign, the sign of Jonah, that he rose from the dead, victorious and vindicated. And we praise his mighty name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to help your children dive deeper into the story of Jonah, we invite you to try our January 2021 Family Discipleship Kit, A Journey in Jonah. This family devotional is set up like a board game and challenges families to answer one question a day for the month of January. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, wpbiblefellowship.org fdk. That's FDK as in Family Discipleship Kit. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and have a great week.